Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll be reading verses 50 through 58. Please stand if you're able as we read from the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to our study in 1 Corinthians. Father, what remarkable words you have given us, a glimpse of what awaits us, things that you have planned for us, and the great promise that no matter what we may go through here, our labor is not in vain. Lord, we don't see it now, we hardly believe it, but we thank you for the truth of it, that one day we will know it and see it that you have brought all things to their proper fulfillment in Jesus. Father, would you open our eyes to your word today and give us joy and conviction in it, in Christ's name, amen. You may be familiar with the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. It's quite an old story. It tells the tale of a medieval town plagued by rats and of the mysteriously dressed stranger who offers for a fee to take the rats away. He does so, of course, uh, by piping a tune to lead all the rats of Hamelin Town down into the Vesa River to drown them. And then returning to the city council for his thousand guilders, the council refuses to pay him, and so he then plays a different tune and leads all of the children out of their homes and out of the town. I want to read to you, this is how the poet Robert Browning famously imagines what happens next as the townspeople look on helplessly, fearing that the piper means to drown their children as he has the rats. But how the mayor was on the rack and the wretched council bosoms beat as the piper turned from the high street to where the vaser rolled its waters right in the way of their sons and daughters. However, he turned from south to west and to Koppelberg Hill his steps addressed. And after him, the children pressed Great was the joy in every breast. He never can cross that mighty top. 
He's forced to let the piping drop, and we shall see our children stop. When lo, as they reach the mountainside, a famous portal opened wide, and as if a cavern was suddenly hollowed, and the piper advanced and the children followed. And while all were in to the very last, the door in the mountainside shut fast. Did I say all? No, one was lame and could not dance the whole of the way. And in after years, if you would blame his sadness, he was used to say, it's dull in our town since my playmates left. I can't forget that I'm bereft of all the pleasant sights they see, which the piper also promised me. For he led us, he said, to a joyous land, joining the town and just at hand, where waters gushed and fruit trees grew and flowers put on a fairer hue and everything was strange and true. The sparrows were brighter than peacocks there and their dogs outran our fallow deer. And honeybees had lost their stings and horses were born with eagles' wings. And just as I became assured my lame foot would be speedily cured, the music stopped and I stood still and found myself outside the hill, left alone against my will to go now limping as before and never hear of that country more. The music stopped and I stood still and found myself outside that hill. I find myself there this morning, don't you? We are told of a joyous land that seems beyond our reach, beyond our imagination, and yet a land where for some of us, our parents, our grandparents, some of our children, our dear friends, a husband or a wife has gone into that far country. And it seems, doesn't it, some days as if we are like that lame child, promised delights, but separated from them and finally shut out, left to go on limping as before, never to hear in real terms of that country more. We've seen such awful losses over this last year. So this is the question in the light of texts like this one, what are we supposed to do? Are we to shrug our shoulders and tell ourselves, well, it was good to know those people while we had them, but now we must move on, just keep busy. What are we to hold on to in a world of doubt and disappointment. Well, this, Paul says this right at the beginning of chapter 15. He says, the gospel I preach to you in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast to the word. And so it's this word, the word that John has read to us, the word that comforts us. It's the word that we come to now in verses 50 through 58. And three final observations from 1 Corinthians 15, something sensible, something secret, and something solid. If you would uh, turn to it, either in your paper Bibles or on your phones, we're going to make our way through these uh, final eight verses of this chapter. So, first of all, verse 50, something sensible. This is what Paul says, but I mean this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor can what is corruptible inherit what is incorruptible. Now, Paul begins by answering a question which was a big problem for the Christian church in ancient Greece. 
Now these questions have receded into distant memory for us, but for them this was one of the challenges of Christian theology in the Greek world. You remember Paul had been laughed off the stage in Athens at the Areopagus because he had mentioned the word resurrection, the raising of a human body from death, and the claim that Jesus, after death, had risen to life in a human body again. To the Greeks, this was distasteful nonsense. The human body was an unworthy container for the immortal soul. No one in their right mind would suggest trying to get back into a body again after death when the soul could soar to the heavens. But Paul was obstinate about it, as he means us to be too. We will have bodies where we are going. And as Zach showed us last week, they will be ultimately human bodies like Jesus' resurrected body. Will those bodies then be the bodies we have right now? Of course not, Paul says. Flesh and blood, the stuff that we are made of, cannot inherit. It cannot be adapted to living in the kingdom of God. It must change. You and I could no more inherit the kingdom of God with our current flesh and blood, our lives, our bodies, than a paper man or woman could expect to live in a world of fire. We cannot inherit it as we are. Our bodies will have to change. You know, even if you and I were to be somehow renewed in every cell in our body so that we were brand new, newer than even a newborn baby, our bodies are not suited for that environment that's coming. They will have to be changed. And by implication here, our spirits must be changed too. Our spirits must be changed first. It makes sense, doesn't it? The Corinthians would have got this. They would have understood the logic of it. There are two parts to you, body and spirit or body and soul. I'll leave you to look up the theology on that one. But both have to be changed. Both have to be suited, body and spirit, for the kingdom of God. And it's crucial that we see this. This is what the Greeks didn't see, that both parts of us are in trouble. When we talk about the effects of the fall and of human depravity, we're not saying that human beings are of no value to God. Quite the contrary. But neither are we saying that we will become, all of us, axe-wielding murderers. Thankfully, by God's grace, that's not so. But the infection of sin, this is what the doctrine of depravity says, the infection of sin has infected every part of us, in total, body and soul. To use biblical language, Jeremiah describes the heart, and he means by that your soul or your spirit is desperately wicked. Jesus, when he was saying nice about human fathers, I don't know if you remember this from Matthew, and he was speaking about them caring for their children, said, even though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. In other words, the brokenness has extended to all of us, even the parts of us we think it hasn't reached. We don't see it. Because the brokenness is profound, it is self-protective and self-deceiving. What is corruptible cannot inherit or take on what is incorruptible. Inside, you and I, uh, inside and out, will have to be changed. You know, when I first uh, arrived in the States uh, in Britain in my early 20s, I got off the plane and spoke with the Queen's English and stuck out like a sore thumb in New England. 
There was no doubt where I was from, but over the years, uh, I've lost it somewhat. 30 years later, I had this lady ask me when my wife and I were walking the other day if I was from Scotland. <laughs> There'll be none of that confusion in heaven. It will be clear. There'll be no trace of the accent of sin about you. Not that the Scottish are sinful any more than the English are. But you will be you, body and soul, but you will be profoundly changed. It will be clear who you belong to and where you belong, and you will be suited physically, spiritually, and in ways you cannot imagine to your new environment. So Paul's saying here, body and spirit have to change. That was news to the Greeks. And I think profoundly, it probably is to our society too, because we think we're all right and that God will accept us on the merits of who we are inside and out. But the news is God has to change us to suit us to the kingdom of God. There's a logic to that. Even the Corinthians would have understood it. It's something sensible. Second, something secret, verses 51 to 53. Look here in verse 51. Behold, Paul says, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Paul calls this a mystery because no one has known it except God, who has presumably graciously revealed it to Paul. Now, with that mystery has come some confusion. What does Paul mean when he says, we shall not all sleep? It's not language that we use when we're speaking about death here in verse 51. There's a, a different se sequence, you'll notice, in what Paul is describing on that future day when Christ shall return. Both those who have died, he's saying, those who have fallen asleep, we shall not all sleep because some will be alive on that day, including Christians. They all shall be resurrected in new bodies and shall know the truth of the experience. How quickly will that change happen in the experience of the person alive at the time? Well, in the twinkling of an eye. How long is the twinkling of an eye? I looked it up on the internet. Some math nerds have actually calculated how long the twinkling of an eye is. You would think people have better things to do with their time. But it is apparently, according to the best minds, 11 one hundredths of a second probably faster than the physical speed of thought in the brain. Before you know it, you will be changed. When will it happen? Paul says at the sound of the last trumpet. When will that be? Well, the Old Testament prophets were always talking of trumpets, trumpets which would signal the arrival of an invading army. But in Revelation, particularly in Revelation 11, it's the seventh trumpet, the final trumpet, John says, that will sound the moment that, quote, the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. If you think about it, there will be no six o'clock news that night, presuming that the Lord comes before six o'clock. <laughs> Human history will have ended. Who will be changed in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet? The answer, and this may be a surprise to you, is everyone. All human beings who have ever lived, all human beings, whether alive or dead, at that time of Christ's arrival, will be changed. They will be resurrected in new bodies. Every human being will be raised in a new body. 
Zach had this excellent turn of phrase in his sermon last week. He talked about our resurrection bodies not simply being an upgrade or an overhaul, sorry, an overcoat. Rather, we will experience a transformational overhaul. That really is, I think, the best description of the change, the scope of the change which is coming to every human being. Every human will receive a body suited for their new environment. While I was uh, feeling nerdy and being on the internet, I, um, I watched a TED talk by a man called Michael Lewin, who's a, uh, a biologist, uh, describing his work with tadpoles and with flatworms. He was saying that they think they have discovered something remarkably new. This is as of two months ago. Something which is common, not just to the cells of tadpoles and flatworms, but to all living cells. What they have seen for the first time is something that apparently they've never seen before. It's a bioelectrical layer in the cell. It's a network over every cell that carries on a kind of conversation between different parts of the cell in the developing creature's body as to which part is going to be the head and which part is going to be the tail and so on and when to stop making whatever it is that whatever beastie you're becoming. Far greater he suggests it is than the influence even of DNA, a pattern memory within every cell. Now, the reason that's interesting is that the research reminds me of Paul's phrase in verse 38, saying that God gives each living thing the body he has chosen for it, suggesting a pattern. C.S. Lewis, who's always brilliantly insightful on these things, I guess time will tell whether he was right, he writes this in his book, Miracles. The great resurrection involves a rush of matter towards organization at the call of spirits which require it. It is presumably a foolish fancy, not justified by the words of scripture, that each spirit should recover those particular units of matter which he ruled before. For one thing, there wouldn't be enough to go around. We all live in secondhand suits, and there are doubtless atoms in my chin which served many another man, many an eel, many a dinosaur. However, my form remains one, though the matter in it changes continually. I am in that respect like the curve in the waterfall. Although it's speculation, my guess is that may not be so far off of how God intends to remake you and me. Not by having to reconstitute every molecule from the day that you were born, but according to a form that he alone has for you as a person, a pattern memory, if you will. The Bible in Corinthians talks about an image of the Son of God, literally a picture, an icon of Christ in you, which will be perfectly suited for the next world. But it bears repeating that no matter where we stand with God, every human being will be raised in a resurrected, eternal body. And I want us to think about this because we almost never do. These are the words from Daniel 12 about that general resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Human beings will all be raised, not as ghosts, not as zombies, not as the walking dead, but as living, resurrected beings with all of their faculties and more, raised to an eternal future. You've been told beforehand 
so that you who are in Christ can look forward to it and those who are not may be warned. Third, something solid, verses 54 to 58. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I was uh, here at a very nice wedding reception a few weeks ago in the fellowship hall. And as we were eating, I noticed a rather nasty and large-looking wasp with a formidable stinger cruising through the cupcakes uh, on our table. I was obliged to relocate him. But I was uh, hunting for the source of the problem, and I noticed that the church doors here were open, and uh, I know uh, from experience that there is a wasp nest nearby. So I closed the door, and our wasp problem was at least temporarily dealt with. You may have guessed what it is that makes this passage so glorious, and yet at the same time so heartbreaking. If all are raised to eternal life in bodies that will never wear out, what will become of those for whom the sting of death under sin and the law has not been paid for and has not been removed? Jesus said they will be, and it's so many of the people that we know, shut out. This is the warning. The door will be closed against them forever to suffer the stinger of death, even after death itself has been destroyed. Jesus, we knew, who was always speaking in analogies, of course he had to when he was describing what that world will be like, described the landfill outside Jerusalem, Gehenna as it was called, and the maggots that would feed on the bodies there and the fires that would not go out. And he drew people's attention to it and said, if you can imagine that staggeringly awful reality forever, four human beings who have chosen in the dignity given to them to reject the only means of rescue offered in Christ, well, then you will be imagining something horrific. In fact, as you may know, many theologians have turned away from this, even some very prominent evangelicals in the doctrine of what's called conditional annihilation. But there is, sadly, no such evidence anywhere in Scripture that we will simply stop. Hell is so awful that Christ said, figuratively speaking, it is far better to cut off the hand that causes you to sin rather than to end up in hell. He was speaking in analogies, but as he says in John 3, this was the great motive for his mission. This tells you something, doesn't it, about Jesus and his Father and the Spirit. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And we know what giving means, having read the story of Jesus, that Christ gave everything so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And again, we don't often think about those words. We see them placarded at football games, at least when there were football games. But perish. Jesus is not speaking about the first physical death. He's talking about an eternal perishing as opposed to eternal life. So that's why Jesus came. And why is the church still here? Well, we're not here simply to survive our three score years and ten, but to personally deliver, as we have opportunity, Christ's message of warning and good news. And you will be called all sorts of names. Bible thumper, 
preaching sermons of hellfire and brimstone, intolerant, elitist, medieval, worse than that. But this is the gravity of what we're facing. That Jesus said, I'll tell you whom to fear. You should fear the one who could decide to throw you into hell by his justice. And he said that to his followers, those who were listening to him. Why are we given this? Because in that sleep of death, as Hamlet said, what dreams may come for the person who goes into eternity not knowing Christ. People will not just stop. They are eternal spirits. They will have resurrected bodies. They will consciously go on forever. And thus, the gospel becomes paramount, doesn't it? But for those who are in Christ, we are assured that those who look to him, who cling to his mercy, he will bring us sinners to his wedding feast, safe from the wasps of an aggrieved divine justice, delivered from the fatal corruption of our own souls. How? Because, Paul says, Christ has permanently dismantled the mechanism of our condemnation. He will destroy death. Paul says the law has always condemned the man or woman lost in their own sinfulness, and death, of course, has been the great cooperator with that. The law can tell you what to do, but it can't lift a finger to save you from what's coming. But Christ has answered the law. He has atoned for sin and dismantled death, and in him you are free from its power to define your destiny. I, was, I watched a movie one time, and uh, there the statement was made that it is our mortality that defines us. It is the truth of our existence. Well, Paul says that will no longer be the case. It is, and it will be, your eternity, not your mortality, that will define you as a human being, where you will be, who you will be with. And as a Christian, that is true of you right now. So if sin is paid for and the law answered in Christ, death is defanged. The stinger is removed. You and I, in all likelihood, will die before the Lord returns, but death will have no dominion over you. It will have lost its power to keep you from the one who loves you. Now, quickly as we close, what does this mean for the way that we live now? Well, it's leading, I think, to some solid things, things that we should grasp and hold on to. First, we need to live, don't we, in the good of this promise, I think, daily. Jesus asked the Sadducees, who famously didn't believe in the resurrection, he said, haven't you read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob present tense. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, your deceased loved one is doing right now what you would hope for them. They are alive. They are living their new life this morning, a life one day you will join them in, and that fact should change everything for us. You can see why Paul says we grieve, but as not as those who have no hope. Our hope is substantial. Our hope tells us that with our own eyes, we will see them and we will see the face of God. We cannot see them, but we will go to them. They are alive. That's the truth 
of resurrection. No pie in the sky, but truth that's true this morning. Second, given the awful prospect of eternal death for many, we need to find ways to be honest with people about Jesus. You know, Zach said we are ordaining Matt Cover to be our evangelist this morning, but poor Matt, if all of the evangelism of the church was laid simply on his shoulders. Now, the calling is for all of us to share, not in big speeches, not with Billy Graham's kind of rhetoric and power necessarily, but just as ourselves. Perhaps to memorize John 3.16 or Romans 6.23. And if you can't remember anything else, just ask your friend, what have you done with what Jesus said about you? And the question will come, what has Jesus said about me? Well, then you're off to the races. And third, because what you do for Christ in this life will have eternal consequence, we need to confront the fact that we must endure hardship. That is the message of much of the New Testament, that we have been called to suffer with the body of Christ, to suffer in the various ways that Jesus has called us to. Part of that suffering is the groaning that's within us already, within our spirit for what must be and what we long for. This is Paul's answer to Solomon's bitterness in Ecclesiastes over the crushing futility of life, over the the robbery of death. We are more than conquerors, Paul says in Romans 8. How? Well, because even the greatest conqueror in human history has died and has lost what he has conquered. But when death has been conquered, what is meaningful and what is precious will be retained and reclaimed And what has been broken or separated will be reunited and remade. Whatever happens, there is meaning in what you do for the Lord. We are to persevere in that hope, knowing that what we do in this life echoes in eternity. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory, who gives you the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So three things to hold on to, something sensible, something secret, and something solid as we hope together and live life in the light of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, it is appropriate that we be quiet in ourselves, that we think about these words that are written in Paul these words that have been said by the Lord Jesus, words of unimaginable consequence for human beings. Lord, would you help us to do what we have said, to persevere in the calling that you have given us, in the light of the hope of the resurrection that we will know and we will see you face to face. And then before we come to you, you have given us this task of sharing the gospel of God's good news through Christ. Amen.